Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show. All right, and welcome to Tax Tuesday. My name is Toby Mathis. And I'm Jeff Webb. And uh, we're bringing tax knowledge to the masses as best we can. Let's see if we can do it. Today, we have a whole bunch of folks in uh, on as well to answer your questions. You don't see their faces, but uh, I know for a fact, because I can see them, that we have Matthew, Patty, Elliot, Pio, Dana, Troy, Ian. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else on that I'm missing. Probably, but uh, we got a whole bunch of folks on to answer your questions. If uh, if you're wondering whether this is live, you can test it by going into chat and asking to see if somebody responds to you. No, it's not an autoresponder. Uh, you can ask questions. Here's the rules. We have two ways you can respond back. Number one is the chat, which is if you just have comments. But if you have specific questions, go into tack the the little thing that says Q and A at the bottom. So that's your question and answer. And the reason that we do that is because we have sometimes up to a thousand people on these live. And if we have everybody answering a question in chat, it just goes, flies right on by us. So if you have a question, by all means, put it into the Q&A. If you have questions during the week, go to Tax Tuesday to Anderson Advisors. That's where we pull our questions, which we'll be going over today. That's where we grab, uh, we usually grab between 10 and 15 of them every week mm-hmm. or every two weeks. And uh, for every session that we do a Tax Tuesday, we will go over those. And that's what we do because uh, believe it or not, a lot of those questions create more questions. They become good learning experiences. Uh, this is fast, fun, and educational. We try to give back because we know that it's no fun to ask a question of your tax person and have them bill you three, four, 500 bucks an hour, sometimes even more. <laughs> it's crazy. Lots of good questions that are already popping in. I think that the, our guys will just be answering those. I just submitted a capital gains question. We got to hear what you do is put it on in there, Arena, and our guys will get back to you while we're in here. So let's jump in. First off, here's the questions we're going to be going over today. What I like to do is read them, and then we will go over them one by one. So I like to go over all of them so you see what's coming up. And the reason that we do that is because we want you to see all the different questions so you can see what's relevant to you so you can stick on. If you see something that's awesome, if you're pressed for time, you can go back and watch the recording, but you know that it's going to get answered. So we always go through these, the opening questions uh, during the session. All right, so let's start off. I have an LLC, but I want to know if I need one for each of my properties that are short-term rentals. So we'll answer that one uh, here in a little bit. I have an investment property, a house that is paid off and I'd like to transfer it to my son who's currently living in it with his family. What is the best way of doing it to eliminate the tax consequences to him and I? I'm 67 and my son is 33 years old. So we'll hit that one too. How many years can you go back to look audit your tax returns? We had a significant loss of business, but still owe taxes for three years. My husband insisted we use H&R Block and I think they screwed up. The odds are in your favor. Uh, so we'll go over that. We're evil here. We, there's actually a really good study that was done on chain preparers, and they were wrong 100% of the time on 
business returns. So I, again, I say the odds are pretty good that they did. So hopefully we can give you some, uh, some, some goodness. I started a roofing business in 2020. I only did one roof for $7,800, but I paid the roofer $6,300 and $1,200 for supplies. So I'm going to do add addition in my head. It looks like it's about $7,500. So he made a tiny little bit. I was told that if you made under 100K, you, you do not have to file. I started the LLC in January of 2020. What late fees do I have to, do I have to file for 2020? So we'll try to bring you some resolution to that. Hopefully some of these folks are on and we can ask them questions. Currently trading options in normal non-tax advantage brokerage accounts. Currently paying $1,500 to $3,000 a month in trading commissions and fees. Woof. I've tried no fee platforms, but their fills are horrible and potentially unable to close positions equals more costly than paying commission for faster fills. Question one like to be able to write off these fees to offset question. Question number two, how to make this trading income active instead of passive for further tax benefits. So you're thinking of it like a business. Good questions. We'll get to that. I started a business last year, setting it up as a C-Corp. I invested approximately $180,000 is the franchise fees, equity injunctions or injection, et cetera. What are the different ways to get the tax benefit while reimbursing myself? Should I leverage a 1202 qualified small business stock is what that means, QSBS. Is that only applicable at the sale of the business? Can I still reimburse myself for equity? I'm glad that you're asking these questions. We'll give you some clarity here. I bought a rental property uh, on, looks like December 8th of 2021. The renter signed the lease on the 24th of December. I had intended it to start on 1-1-2022, 2022, but because of a state law, the lease started on the signing date and ends on 12 31, 2022. No rent was paid until January. When is the property considered placed into service? When do I start depreciation? I, did, I didn't have any income in 2021, so would the depreciation carry forward? Great questions, and we'll get into those. Can you talk about writing off a new truck purchase? for use exclusively for my business. And what are the tax benefits of having real estate professional status? Nothing like open-ended questions that we will get into. Jeff loves these because he likes to explain things, right? Uh, when my Wyoming Holding LLC, my Wyoming, my Wyoming Holding LLC owns another domestic LLC of mine that is an active business, both single member LLCs as a licensed insurance agent to both LLCs have to file a tax return. And if so, will active one flow into holding one, which then flows onto my person? So we'll, we'll dissect that. I have heard Tobin talk about benefits of cost segregation. I'm just going to add a word in there to make it understandable. I've heard Tobin talk about the benefits of cost segregation. I've tried to read more about it. How do you cost segregation analysis? On the IRS website, they talk about construction blueprints, construction engineers, and construction budget. If it is part of a construction project for a new building, how do you get the analysis done if you purchased pre-owned property? Do you hire a firm? So we'll dive into that and we'll go over what the requirements are. Last question that we're going to be going over, I operate my business out of my home and want to rent the home to my entity so I can write off the mortgage rental expense as a business expense and use a primary residence loan to purchase a new home. Can I achieve this by writing a lease to my business? How can I go about this? So great questions today. We will dive into all of them. 
Speaking of which, you might be watching this uh, on our YouTube channel, which we do with these as YouTube Live, mm -hmm. or you may be watching it as part of a Zoom call. Either one works. But if you are on the YouTube channel, you'll see that we have a ton of other content, including previously recorded Tax Tuesdays. We also do a, a lot of videos on specific topics. And by all means, please hit that subscription button. You can just do the little subscriber. It's up in the right corner. You see a little finger on it right up there. It's kind of halfway cut off. But if you go to the actual YouTube, this is the aba.link forward slash YouTube. You can see the link there. Somebody might share it. There you go. Patty already did it. She's way ahead of me. Uh, you just click on it and subscribe. And then you're notified whenever a new video comes out. It's not going to spam you. Right. It's just going to say, hey, new video was put up on X. And if you want to watch it, go watch it. If you don't, save it for later. Here we go. You ready, Jeff? I'm ready. All right. I have an LLC, but want to know if I need one of, for, uh, for each of my properties that are short-term rentals. Jeffrey, what do you say? I say need is a very strong word here. Mm -hmm. You don't need one for every uh, short-term rental. If you can do it, I, I think it's a great idea to have one for every rental, but you don't have to have this. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think, I think it depends on where you are in life. So here's what I would say. From a risk reduction standpoint, mm -hmm. you want to make sure you keep your personal realm separate from your investments and the risk associated with businesses or investments. In other words, you don't want to have a Hey, a short-term rental, by the way, means an Airbnb or a VRBO. It's just a rental that is going to be seven days or less, and it's considered an active business. So if you have an accident on one of your properties, and I'll use a real-life example, somebody was in a swing, the branch broke, the branch came down and killed the individual that was on the swing, right? Horrible situation. Stuff like that happens, though. And if you're a VRBO... It could be somebody falling down your stairs. It could be somebody drowning in your hot tub. Whatever, just fill in the blanks. There are bad things that could happen or injuries. Isolate that from your personal realm. And the way you do that is using a limited liability entity like an LLC around the property. Now, if you're just getting started out, you might have one, two, or three. I would strongly recommend that you isolate each property because each property could create liability for the others. So for example, Jeff here mm -hmm. has a bunch of investments and he's gone through life and he's got his accumulation. He may be in a different uh, circumstance than somebody who is just getting started out. Jeff could afford to lose a property or two, and it's probably not going to change his retirement. But if you're just getting started out, it could really suck if you have two properties and something happens on one and they take the other. So for that person, I would say isolate them from each other. Best practice is to isolate your liabilities. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you if you have 100 properties to have 100 LLCs. It becomes a very different situation. If you have three, uh, three properties, you might want to put an LLC around each one. If you have 300, you're probably going to be okay grouping them 20, 30 properties per LLC because you're like, hey, I'm not going to worry about it if I lose it. So how do you feel about, uh, let's say I have a uh, property in California, one in Florida, and one in Massachusetts? I would isolate those. Isolate those. I, I think when it comes to them being in separate states, you probably want the LLCs to be in those specific states. And you could have them all flow up into a holding yeah. so that you have one tax return, uh, federal tax return. You might have a state tax return, which is easy to do. But let's just say that you have separate LLCs in different states 
And now you know, hey, this is the worst that's going to happen is they take the stuff in that state. Yeah. What you don't want is to find yourself getting sued over and over and over again because of an occurrence on one piece of property. And I've actually seen it. One of my things that opened my eyes was I had a client, this is 25 years ago, and she was in a course and she said she had already gone through it. She lost 15 pieces of property. And she said it was like dominoes. She had a liability occurrence on one and they ended up going through and taking everything, including her personal residence. Anybody tells you that they can't take your personal residence, it's a state-by-state state issue. And in some states, there's literally like $10,000 of protection. Once that liability has happened, anything you do after that's a fraudulent conveyance, they can undo it. But for the most part, they just start bulldozing right on through all your stuff. So you just isolate it. It's not hard, really simple. That's what we do at our firm day in and day out. And so best practice, I would say the best practice is to have your properties isolated. If there's too many properties, you don't want to isolate it, at least strip the equity out so mm -hmm. that if somebody sues you, they're going after a smaller target. In other words, if there's debt against it and you take the cash out and put it someplace else, at least that's safe. And, uh, and just, again, just make sure you're doing so with your eyes open. Yeah. You don't want to get caught with, I got a million dollar property in Malibu, a million dollar property in Destin Beach, and I got a hundred thousand dollar property in Dayton, Ohio, all in the same LLC. Something yep. happens to the Dayton property and I lose everything. everything else. And that's exactly what, what could happen. And as we've seen over the last two or three years, we've had really high appreciation. Now I'll just tell you, you're going to hear a lot of things on the news about the cooling, or the crash, or the bubble that's going to burst. Here's the thing. This isn't a typical 2020, 2008, where we mm -hmm. have, we're overbuilt and we have too much inventory and there's liar loans out there and people can't afford it. We have really low unemployment. People are servicing their debt. Yes, affordability is going down and it's going to cool the market, which means stuff that would have flown off the shelves. Now people are going to have to stop and go, oh, it's getting a little more expensive and maybe they're not as bidding wars. I don't see the market crashing as a result. This was self-inflicted wounds. We, we, we created what, $7 trillion of debt of our debt in a, about a year and a half. It took us 215 years to reach $7 trillion of debt, the first $7 trillion. And then we just did it again in a, in a little bit over a year. We are printing money like crazy, which is causing inflation. That's a self-inflicted wound. The Fed is going to try to stop it but it's not normal inflation. We did this. This isn't market forces doing it. It's supply chain because we shut down because we had a pandemic. It's we devalued things because we printed so much money. It's not, it's not the economy that did it. This is us doing it to ourselves and mm -hmm. all the raising of all the debt in the world is not going to necessarily change that. We're going to just have to wait this one out. But you know, regardless, you want to make sure that you've seen massive increases in appreciation. You don't want to expose it to the one liability occurrence. You had this big run-up properties, some of them doubling in value, tripling in value. And all of a sudden you, you don't realize you have all this beautiful equity in there. And all it takes is a robust plaintiff's lawyer getting a hold of a good set of facts and they'll try to separate you from all that appreciation. You don't want to. You will not appreciate the separation from your appreciation. All right, Jeff, I have an investment property, a house. I like that they put that in there. That is paid off, and I would like to transfer it to my son, who is currently living in it with his family. 
what is the best way of doing it to eliminate the tax consequences to him and I? I'm 67 and my son is 33 years old. What say you? Well, there are three ways to do this. One, you could sell it outright to him. Mm -hmm. Two, you could gift it to him. He would take it over at your cost basis. In other words, your investment in that property. Mm -hmm. Or three, you could kind of do a combination of both. You you could gift part of it and uh, you could sell it for a discounted value. Now, the gifting has no tax consequences whatsoever unless that property is worth more than $12 million. Uh, what Jeff's referring to is you have an uh, you have a an exclusion for transferring an, an estate to somebody if you die, yeah. And that same amount can be used for gifting during your lifetime. So what is it, twelve point oh five zero or something like that? Or yeah, really I think it's twelve twelve million and some change. change yeah. So it's twelve million bucks. What Jeff's basically saying quite correctly is, <laughs> you could probably just give the house to your kid and you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, if you're not looking to get anything out of it and you just want to provide your son with a house, just gift it to him. You will have to do an appraisal on the house and you will have to file a gift tax return. But here comes the miserable asset protection attorney who's seen a million of these things go sideways. You said son and his family. Are you okay if son and family become son and ex-wife and that that ex-wife may take your house? And that's the question that you have to ask yourself. So it's like, hey, I want to give this. Is there any chance you're going to need it? Are you, you're 67, which means there's a look back period for uh, Medicaid of what, five years? Five years. Are you any, is this going to cause you to need assistance that all of a sudden this could be a, a sticky wicket? So what I would do, if it's me, unless you have a really good reason not to, I'd probably do this on a, you just carry a note and sell it to him. Uh, a, it's going to step up his basis. And then if you don't want to get paid, like you could just gift that money back. So sell it at fair market value, say, hey, pay me this, but you don't have to get paid. What you could do is say, mm -hmm. all right, I'm just going to gift those payments to you and you're going to have a tax consequences to it. You know, chances are it's not going to be horrific because every year, in theory, you should be charging them rent anyway. I don't know how the IRS would probably look at that. They'd probably say that's a gift if you have family members living in a property. They just treat it as... Um personal home, personal that, home. That yeah, that's right. are li living with residents living. Yeah. yeah. It was just second home. So you're not getting much tax benefit out of it. So there'd be, if you did it, like uh, if it was your primary residence any time in the last five years, two of the last five years, that'd be great. You could probably avoid any tax uh, on at least the gain. Mm -hmm. But if it's a uh, property, just second property, uh, you know, we'd have to explore, was it ever used as a rental? Was it used as a primary residence? Because there's some tax consequences to both of those. Yes. But my inclination would probably be just to make sure you don't lose control of that property is to have the, a debt. And that way, if something did happen with your son and his family, and I'm not, I don't want to curse anybody who's just seen this happen way too often where somebody is kicking themselves going, I didn't know, I didn't know that at least you have, you, 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 it's, it's, you could choose whether or not to continue to gift those payments to them. If something happened along the, those lines. So it's just a reality. It's about a 50 50 shot. I'm sorry, but that's just me, my horrible asset protection side of me going, it's a pretty good chance it's going to happen. So we should address it. Somebody says, if you gift your house, where and who has, is, has the new basis? You, when you gift an asset, here, I'll just, you, you already mentioned this. Why don't you just? Yeah. When, when, if I gift an asset to Toby, then he gets my basis. So if I paid $100,000 for a house, 
and haven't depreciated it, he gets the house at a basis of 100000 even if it's worth three times that now. Mm-hmm. It's not like when you inherit a house, then you get the stepped-up basis. Correct. Right. So if you paid $50,000 for the house and it's worth two fifty, your son's basis would be 50000 unless you mm-hmm. sell it to him. You sell it to him, now his basis is whatever the sale is. And again, it's up to you. Um, and then somebody says, uh, when the house is gifted to the son, will it be uh, reassessed for property tax? It could be. Lynette. Yep. It actually could be. Uh, so it's again, you, you, that's why you look at these things before you just give something over. I'm not a big fan of gifting assets over uh, to kids, just not uh, because there's so many unintended consequences. We see it all the time. Certain uh, certain cultures, especially, you'll see it oftentimes given to eldest son and eldest son may have some liabilities lurking. And I've seen that more often, like more than once. So so what about what, what about just holding on to the asset and just letting them live there? I don't know. And bequeathing that house to them. You could do that too. That's, you know, here's the, here, we should talk about that just for two seconds. The benefit of dying and leaving an asset to somebody is the step up in basis. Mm-hmm. So he's living in the house. You just say, Hey, you know what? Just stay in the house. You can just live here. That's great. Your son might be saying, Hey, but I really want to own it, which you give, you give him an option. Hey, you can buy it at this, you know, at some point in the future. But if something happens to you, something bad, you know, you, you get a disease, terminal disease, accident, COVID just, you know, caught a few folks, something and you, in, 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 and you pass away, the benefit is that you now have a higher basis. So if they do sell it at some point in the future, that uh, they don't have to pay tax on all that increase right. in value that, 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 ex- that had happened during your lifetime. Let's keep going on because I know we'll be here till midnight if you let me. <laughs> How many years can you go back to look audit your tax returns? We had a significant loss of my business, but still owe taxes for three years. That sounds bitter. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like, man, we lost a bunch of money, but we still owe taxes. My husband insisted we use H&R Block, and I think they screwed up. So I think what they're really asking, Jeff, is... Can we go back and amend these screwed up returns? Maybe. You can go back to the, the, the statute of limitations is three years from the time the return was filed. Mm-hmm. So if you filed your 2018 return before April 15th, that that has already sunset. The statute's already ran out on that. That one particular year. Yes. If you filed it, after, if you got an extension for that return, which if you went to H&R Block, I kind of doubt. If you got an extension for that return and filed it later in the year, uh, you might still be able to amend that 2018 return. Mm-hmm. 2019 and 2020 are both still open to be amended. Yeah. So if you had significant loss for three years, chances are that sounds like it's 2018, 19, and, and 20, 20. I would imagine. Yeah. You know, so, uh, and that you still owe taxes. For some reason, they may not have. I mean, if you had business losses, they may have treated them as investment losses and carried them forward. I don't know how they would actually treat that. Let's say that somebody treated something as a passive loss when it should have been an active loss. Mm-hmm. It really is the year that it's incurred that's going to control that, right? So if, right. You, if you erroneously called it a passive, I think you're kind of stuck with that. You keep carrying it forward, but hopefully you're able to go back and correct the situation because I'm with you. If I lose money in a business, it depends on the business. 
because a C corp is different than an S corp is different than a partnership is different than a sole proprietorship as to how that's treated on your personal return. I want to make sure and go back. Can't you amend after statute if you're able to reduce tax liability if they owe? No. Bridget, no. Unfortunately, that statute of limitations is for both you and the service. The service can open it up and go back seven years if you have a significant reduction of tax. I think it's 10 years for fraud or is it forever for fraud? That's a good question. I, I was thinking about six years or seven years, but for a frivolous return, I think they can go back forever. You can go back if it's a, if it's an intentional situation. They, they don't have a statute. Otherwise, you're looking at that three years. And it's for both you guys. So let's say I'm able to amend 18, 19, 20, and I got net operating losses on my tax return now. Now I can go back and amend earlier years to use that loss in previous years where I may have had income and what, reduce the income there. What you're pointing out is that during COVID, they yeah. had the the five-year look back where you could take it back to all the way to 2015. So if you amended your 2020, in theory, you could go back and carry it all the way back and start offsetting 2015. Yeah. Right. And then you don't have to worry about a statute because you're carrying back a loss. And as long as you incurred that loss. So there, glimmer of hope. And this is why you use guys like Jeff, who's really, really smart. He's CPA for about 78 years. Give or take. <laughs> Give or take. <laughs> Give or take. <laughs> Yeah, I've just been a CPA a long time. I'm just a tax lawyer. I'm just dumb. I don't do returns. <laughs> How do we hire you right now? You can't, Kiggy. Because uh, we're completely tied up. What you do is put yourself on our list because after the tax season, after uh, October 15th, we're going to reopen and take a new clients on tax. Otherwise, it sounds weird because you don't hear many companies do this, but we're at capacity for this tax year. We're not going to bring anybody in because it would uh, do a disservice to those people that we have currently in our hopper because we are at max capacity. We are, our guys are working their katushes off 24 seven. Yeah. I mean, if you're in the situation where you need these returns a minute, go find a local CPA to take care of us for you. And it's, it, it's worth the paying the fees. You could still come in. Like we still answer tax questions yep. as part of our platinum service. Yes. And you could still do that, but we're not going to prepare the return. We just can't. We just have, we, we, we already took our obligation. I mean, we can look in, in Giggy, reach out. We will, we will take care of you uh, and make sure that we point you in the right direction. And there are some folks that we do work with. You know, we have other associates around the country that we can point you to if, if we're not able to do it. All right. I started a roofing business in 2020 and I only did one roof. It's quite the business. <laughs> I did, I, uh, snark. But I paid the roofers. I paid the roofers. So like what you did is you you were the middleman, and yeah, you got you got a little bit of money. You made three hundred bucks. I was told that if I made under hundred k, you would not have to file. Is there a statute? I wish there was. <laughs> yeah, no, that does not exist unless it's you individually. And what they're thinking of is, hey, if you make less than twelve thousand bucks, you're probably getting it wiped out with the uh, standard exclusion. What is it? Twelve thousand. 12.8. Yeah, wow. something like that. It's, it's, I should look at my little cheat sheets. It's, it's almost 13,000 as an individual that you can make and not pay any tax. So that might be what you're thinking of. Uh, whether there's late fees, it's an LLC. So it depends on how it's taxed. But let's just assume this is just you mm -hmm. and it's a disregarded LLC, meaning that the IRS ignores it. They do this. Oh, it's just you. We'll look at your return. You know, they don't look at the, the LLC. If that's the case, are there any penalties? Uh, no, 
because I'm guessing you probably, well, do you think he filed his return for 2020? Sounds like they didn't file anything. Yeah, I, I would just file the return. Uh, you're not going to pay any self-employment tax on $300. Uh, you're not going to have any tax period, but I would file this return primarily because it's business income of $7,800. And that's really what they're looking at. And you need to take your expenses. If you yes. don't take your expense and they come back later and assess, you could be paying tax on the $7,800. Correct. Because they could say, oh, you and, missed your chance. And then you would pay self-employment tax on that full $7,800. And you don't want that. That's 15.3%. Yeah. yeah. So that could be painful. And if you have a tax liability, there could be penalties and interest. The penalties are capped at what, 25%. Yes. And the interest would be about 6% a year. So yeah, you could still owe some money. It'd be annoying. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, your return, even if it's late, people do this all the time. Hey, I didn't file any returns. What should I do? File them, get a power of attorney. Let's look and see what income's been reported to you. Let's reconstruct as best we can and file your returns. Chances are they're not going to bug you. They're going to be very Please, when I say they, the Treasury is going to be very pleased that you're filing your taxes mm-hmm. and that they didn't have to prosecute you or chase after you. So, And we mentioned statute of limitations earlier. When's the statute of limitations start if I don't file my return? It never starts to run. They can go back and hammer you decades later. So don't do it. Um, all right. Besides, you don't have to. Like You're probably not going to pay any tax. Yeah, you're not going to have any tax. You're going to be out the cost of the return which isn't going to be that much. All right. Currently trading options or learn to do tax returns yourself. Spend some time on the, like it's a small amount. You have cost of goods sold. You paid somebody else to do it. That's actually not cost of goods sold. That's technically you paid somebody else to do Mm -hmm. it. So you have that plus your materials. You're going to have like 300 bucks that you netted. Plus you probably had some other expenses, traveling around. Maybe you bought a tack hammer or something. I don't know, but just do it. Worst case scenario, worst case scenario, you spend some time on it and you don't have, then you can sleep at night. Currently trading options in a normal non-tax advantage brokerage accounts. Currently paying $1,500 to $3,000 a month on trading commissions and fees, which means this is a very active trader. Mm-hmm. I've tried no fee platforms, but their fills are horrible and potentially unable to close positions equals more costly than paying commissions for faster fills. So this sounds like what I would term a professional trader. This is Mm -hmm. somebody who that speed matters because to Jeff or I, I don't think it matters. We're like, eh, didn't get filled immediately. Most investors, they're like, you know, they're not too worried about it. He's working with the price fluctuation. Yes, they're playing. Yes, and I don't do that. I'm I'm an investor and there's a big difference. I buy things to hold them forever and I buy them for their income and I'm not too concerned about I'll usually sell a put to get into a position, but that's a topic for another day. And then I'll get called out on that eventually and forced to buy it. That's great. Or I just get to keep the money from the put and then I don't have to do anything with it. Um, And I do it again the next month. But some people are trading these fluctuations in the market. Very tough to do. But if that's you, you're in a different category than everybody else. And we'll go over that in a second. Question one, like to be able to write off these fees to offset income. How are commissions and fees generally treated? Uh, Generally, well, commissions, you're probably already deducting because they should be included in the, your cost basis and proceeds. hundred percent, hundred percent. Are the Uh, fees included in that too? The fees are not. The fees are usually 
listed separately, they are not deductible to you in any way, shape, or form in your current format. Mm -hmm. So basically what Jeff's saying is there's two sides to this. There's, hey, I'm paying a commission where I could avoid all fees, like on Robinhood, I could just buy things, but then you're going to get hosed periodically, right? Mm -hmm. So here I might be paying 500 or five bucks a, a trade or whatever. That gets added to your basis. If you create a loss as a result, now we have something to worry about because that loss would be considered investment loss. Yep. And it would be considered capital loss, which would be limited on how much I could actually deduct. You can deduct up to 100% of it against your capital gains. But if you lose money in the market and then you have all these fees and you have a loss, you can use up to $3,000 against your other income, including your, your wages. And then you carry the rest forward. You know That's why people that lose money in the stock market, like right now, this market is causing people to bail. Those losses, chances are they're never going to get to take. Yeah. They're just going to carry them forward until they ever get back in the market and make money. Here's a hint. When the market's doing this, lose your, lose your account <laughs> yeah. password and go on a vacation. Don't log in. Yeah, because all they're trying to do is make you do something. They're ah, fear porn, blah, blah, blah. The best thing you can generally do is what Warren Buffett said before, you know, you take the right hand and stick it underneath that right butt cheek. You take your left hand, stick it underneath Jeff's left butt cheek, you know, under yours. Don't touch Jeff's Pushy. butt cheek. Yeah. Just sit on your hands, guys. If you have good income producing stocks, if you don't have good income producing stocks that I'm going to show you how you can learn how to pick the right stocks, no. uh, I'm going to show you how to join Infinity Investing. No, I, I did something a little different. The market was down about 600 points early today. And uh, so I went in and bought some more dividend paying yeah, stock. The, the yields are great. So, But here, here's what I would say is nobody knows where the bottom is. It could be no. 50% lower. I could, could lose that money. That's right. True. But when you buy, the best advice that was ever given to me is by really wealthy folks was, you know, when the account, when, it's, when the market's going up crazy or going down crazy, don't open up your your statements, yeah, right? You're buying it for the income stream. So when you buy dividend producing stocks, you're buying it for that dividend and because you can sell options against it. And this is a great market to be doing that because it's so volatile, you can actually make some good money on it. But don't be looking at the value of your company. Like if I have rental properties and I have a hundred rental properties, I don't care what I paid for them. Like it literally matters nothing to me. How much did you pay for that? Hey, it's gone up. Oh, hey, it's way down. All I care about is, how much are they paying me in rent? And that's mm -hmm. the way that we look at the stock market. And then again, I way smarter people than me talk about this stuff. And I'm just saying that the people that are, that are consistently successful, especially in our client base, where yeah. we do over 10,000 returns a year. Fair. Yeah. The people that are successful do the same thing and they don't sit here and play this jump in the market, jump out of the market. If you do it as a professional, which leads us to question number two, how to make this trading active. You need to bring in a corporation into the mix. And what I would suggest is that you have a trading account sitting in an LLC. You're paying the fees anyway. Who cares? If you do this through a corporation, you have the corporation own 20%, 30%. You literally can just run all the money, all the profit up into that corporation. And then if it pays it out to you, if that's what you want to do, you can dump it all into a 401k. You can use it as active, ordinary income. It's no longer going to be investment income. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that uh, you cannot deduct these fees. 
However, your corporation can't because it's managing the LLC for you, the trading partnership. Yeah. What I would say to you guys is go to the YouTube channel and there are videos on how to set up an active trader business. Now, some of you guys are already saying there's something called trader status. Now, trader status, you can write things off, but you must do two things. Mm -hmm. Number one, you have to qualify as a trader, which means I'm making money in the uh, in a regular continuous basis it is substantial it's really the way the courts have interpreted this it's it's more than 750 trades a year and it's how you make your living and if you take more than 2 to 3 weeks off a year for vacation or you or you miss out i think that 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 one court was saying essentially 75% of the trading days you need to be trading you don't do that you're not going to be a trader yeah so number one, that allows you to write off your expenses as business expenses. As to whether they will be losses will be allowed, you must make a mark-to-market election. And you would have had to have done that last year before April 15th. You can't make a mark-to-market election retroactively or for this current year. We can't even make a, an election for 2022. You're going to have to wait like actually for 2023, we'd have to make it. Well, if you now. make it by April 15th of 2023, it's, it's actually good for 2023. For, so it's for 2023, it, but not yes, for 2022. 2022 is gone. 2022, you cannot do this. So you'd have to be a trader and a mark to market election. And, and something else people don't realize is when you're a trader, what the courts are saying is, you have to be looking to make profit from the daily fluctuations of prices. Yeah. Meaning if I'm holding a bunch of stock long and I'm holding this over here very, very short, I don't get to merge all that together. Yep. I have investments and I have my short-term It's trade. weird, isn't it? It's because it doesn't exist in the code. It was something somebody conjured up and pulled out of their katush and they went to the court saying, hey, it's not fair. I'm a business and I meet the level of a trader business and here's how I do it. And the courts created this thing. If you have a W-2, you're going to fail. Yep. If you do anything else substantial, you're yep. going to fail. Uh, if you look it up online, there's a number of websites that tell you all the different ways this can go wrong. Yeah. You can just go to our YouTube channel. I've written on it and I've done a ton of videos on it. We have like, you, you'll you find, I think we've had about 1400 videos and I would, I would, I would, wager that there's probably 20 or 30 down there that are going to dive into this subject. And you could realize we're not big fans of trader status, even though you might qualify here. I'd have to look at it, see if you're making money. If you're making money, you might be fine. We might say, yeah, you could be a trader. We're not worried about the mark to market because you don't have a loss. We could do it. But there's a, you may as well just put a bullseye on yourself and say, I'd like to be audited because it's facts and circumstances. There's no statute that says you do this, you qualify. Therefore, you get to go in front of the court to see whether you qualify, which means you probably going to get audited and they're probably going to make you go through the t- to a tax judge to determine whether your facts and circumstances meet the requirements. Yeah. So if you're trading and you're making money, it, for me, it doesn't make sense to do the trader status Mm-mm. unless you have substantial other expenses you want to deduct. For the only people that it makes money on are people that are not very good traders and they lose money a lot. And we could probably make them more money by suggesting that they stop trading. Yeah, here, here's how you make more money. <laughs> Come here, right? So uh, this Saturday, I, mean, I have uh, Aaron Adams and I and uh, Nicole DeBrasio probably going to be going over uh, mostly real estate. 
But Infinity has two components to it. It's both the stock and the real estate. Now, here's the good news. Everything's free to get in and to also be a basic member to get most of the the methodologies on the stock market. Like you don't have to be, we call a 360 member to get access to that. If you want to learn how to trade in a very systematic, boring, going to get rich over a long period of time, because statistically it's almost inevitable if you do this, uh, we are like, but we narrow the market down to maybe 60 companies that are going to meet the criteria at any given time. And of those 60, you're probably looking at five a week that are going to hit it. That would be something you'd invest in. It's really, really, we keep it simple. This week, we're going also over real estate. We we want about a third of your portfolio to be in real estate. Not 100%, you notice that. About a third of it's going to be in income-producing stocks, and about a third of it is is, is managed investments of some kind, be it real estate or uh, securities. And then 10% cash or cash equivalents. So like we have a pretty simple methodology, but it works. Some people say, oh, it's boring. Good. (laughs) Boring's good sometimes find the good things like good income producing properties. We find them all over the country. You're going to know uh, if you go Saturday, you'll figure out that everybody that you're talking to is an avid investor, uh, myself included. So we'll be going over that. It's uh, nine to five Pacific standard time or nine to four Pacific standard time. We never really go to five, uh, but we will go over the whole, por- how it works, our philosophy. It's absolutely free. If you have a young person or somebody that's experimenting with debt, we'll get, we'll, we will cure them of that. Uh, send them on over. Like if you have one of those knuckleheaded uh, nieces or nephews or kids that you're like, dang it. Will someone talk some sense into them? We'll show them the charts. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. So you want to come to that? It's absolutely free. Patty will probably share a link to it and you can come on out. Somebody says, why do lawyers do that? (laughs) Because we get tired of watching all these people getting people to lose money. We don't want you to lose money. We want you to stay a client. In order to be a client, you need to be making money because tax issues are usually the realm of those who are making a lot of money. So I need to make sure that you guys make a lot of money. You lose money, you don't need us. Then Jeff and I are sitting around twiddling our thumbs going, where did all the clients go? They all lost everything they had. I don't have to do a return for them anymore. Right. We need you guys to be making money. So uh, a few years back, really one of those things that bit us in the katush and said, we better do this. Wrote a book called Infinity Investing, and we've been teaching it ever since. It's absolutely the basic. We'll get you where you need to go. It's absolutely free, guys. Um, used to be behind a paywall, and we said... As soon as we can stop doing that, we'll do that. And we do very, very well just with our business. We help you guys make money. It is very helpful for an asset protection and tax firm to have somebody teaching them how to make funds. It's great. Yeah. So uh, I started a business last year, setting it up as a C-Corp. I invested approximately $180,000 as franchise fees, equity and check. So it sounds like they probably got like a Quiznos or something. Mm-hmm. What are the different ways to get the tax benefits while reimbursing myself? Should I leverage the 1202? This is this is only applicable when you sell a business and it's small business stock and like we're not going to worry about that. So we can't do that. Can I still reimburse myself for the equity? What do you think? Uh, first off, we'd, we we would need to know how you invested your $180,000. There's Did two you, ways, right? Yeah, you can put it into, you could have bought stock or you could have, loan the money to the corporation or actually a combination of the two, but those are the two primary ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So I would hope most of this $180,000 was in the form of a loan. You can repay that to yourself anytime you want. You, you could still give yourself the equity. Like if somebody goofed yeah. up and they said, hey, I'm going to put in $180,000 in exchange for shares, you can always, that's your basis. You could always right. redeem those and give yourself back the $180,000. I'd rather you do what Jeff's saying, which is just loan it, you know, fund the company with 10 bucks and then loan it. The, the operating capital, you might need it. And then it can always give you that money back. Absolutely free. Uh, one, one thing he mentions is the tax benefit. You're not going to see a personal tax benefit because this money belongs to the corporate. Well, the, the expenses belong to the corporation. Now, now it's a C-corp. So there's losses in that company, period. Yeah. If, if, and those are going to be trapped inside that C-corp. You should know that. If you dissolve the C-corp, you can take up to 100,000 of it as a personal loss. Yes, if you're married. Right. If you bust at 180000 it's not like you lose the 180000 You'd get a $100,000 loss, plus you'd lose the value, the capital loss on the stock, which is another $80,000. So if you put this in as an equity, hey, mm-hmm. I, I paid $180,000 for my shares, you're going to get some tax relief on mm-hmm. it. If you did this as a loan, then you're you know, then you really are in it for zero. The company may have a hundred thousand, one hundred eighty thousand dollar loss, but it has nothing to do with you. Yeah, right. You don't get a benefit from that, but you can get your one hundred eighty thousand dollars back, and it should be paying you interest. If it's over ten thousand bucks, it's got to pay you federal AFR rates at a minimum. As an insider, probably around three percent right now. I don't know what they are. I, I think they've dropped quite a bit. Um, They're back up now. Well. I think they were down to like a quarter percent last year. They were really low, but the long term was, I thought it was closer to 2%. The long term, you might be. It's been all over the place. Yes. I was, I was frankly surprised. Uh, How do you do this as a loan? The recording went out briefly. You just loan it. You just actually do a note. Here's underneath thousand dollars. You're going to pay me back 3% interest plus the principal. Here's it's a demand note. I'll tell you when to pay it. And then it should pay you the interest. If it can't, pay you the interest, then it's an IOU, right? Hey, you owe me the money. Yeah. If this is a true C corporation, you, you're going to go to put some money towards cap mm-hmm. common stock, but not the whole 180. Yep. All right. Here we go. I bought a rental property on December 8th of 2021. Mm-hmm. The renter signed the lease on December 24th, 2021, but it didn't start. Uh, the lease started on 1-1-2022. So you leased it on January 1st of 2022, right? No rent was paid until January, 2022. So here's the big question. When is the property considered placed into service? And Jeff, you'll have to explain why that's important. And when do I start depreciation? I didn't have any income for 2021. So with the depreciation carry forward, Jeffrey. So property is placed in service when it's available for business use. That is, you put it up, sometime in December for advertising it to be rented out. Uh, you did find a renter. So technically, it was placed in service sometime in December. However, and I hope you agree with this, I'm going to say it wasn't placed in service until January 1 of 2022. I would say that it was available for service, placed in service. It was mm-hmm. available for rent the day that he bought it. So I don't think I would take any... Well, it's going to depend on what my other deductions are on my Schedule E. But you would have a very small sliver... Oh, yeah, the depreciation will be very tiny. But I would take it in 2021. Even though he doesn't have any income or... 
Yeah. It's not going to be able to use it. If it was vacant, then you can't take it as a loss anyway. You just carry it forward. But he's going to get that. He might get that extra month, right? Otherwise, if he and it's puts, a half month. Yeah. Yes, it's so. a small amount. But but if he doesn't do that, how are they going to treat it if it was put into service on January 1st? Is he going to get the full year okay. or, are they, or are they going to do a half year convention? Oh, I see. What you're, they'll do a half month convention. So if you say it's placed in service on January 1, he'll get 11 and a half months of depreciation. So this way we get an extra month of yeah. depreciation. So that's. Just, I see what you're saying. But technically, it's placed into service when it's available to be rented. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to rent it technically to get depreciation. And the depreciation may not even be your biggest expense. There may be some other expenses, real estate taxes that you may have paid, interest that you paid if there's a loan on it. We don't know. That's You, do, you don't want to lose those expenses. You want to go ahead and collect mm-hmm. or report those. Now, now, here's the big one is if I didn't have any income in 2021, can I carry that depreciation forward? I think you're required to, actually. So it's not could you. I don't think you can take the loss because there wasn't anybody in the unit. So I think you're sitting in a situation where, you, unless I'm wrong, am I, am I? Yeah, no, you could still take the loss. But if you're making more than $150,000 a year, you're not going to be able to take the loss. If you have a vacant unit, would you, aren't you limited? Uh, no, because it was available for... Oh, if it was available, then you'd be able to use that against your other passive income, unless Correct. you're a real estate professional, in which case, if you're a real estate professional or... If this is short-term rental, so it sounds like it's 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 a year-long rental, so it's not. So, mm-hmm. you, the only thing would be, are you a real estate professional? That's not coming up in this fact pattern, so we're going to say no. You would use it to offset some of your other rents. Otherwise, you just carry it forward. Yeah, you don't yeah. lose it. But good questions always uh, get interesting. Can you talk about writing off a new truck purchase for use exclusively for my business? And what are the tax benefits of having real estate professional status? So let's do number one. Can you talk about writing off a new truck purchase for use exclusively for my business? Well, I, I got to combine this with the second part of the question because they say real estate professional status. Um, so if I'm buying a new truck and all I am is a real estate professional, I doubt that I'm going to have 100% business use for this vehicle. Well, they have. So let's just say this is construction. So this isn't an investor. So this mm-hmm. is... This is, let's say it's construction, real estate agent, fill in the blank. If you're out there and you wrote this question, maybe put in chat uh, what, what you do. And it's used exclusively, which means 100%. If that's the case, then you're going to be underneath the, what is it, luxury vehicles, personal luxury vehicles? Yes. So you, the, the question is, can I write off my entire truck in year one? And it depends on the size of that truck right. or whether it's, whether it's the type of truck, big open back, I think the bed matters and things like that, whether it's going to qualify as equipment. If it qualifies as equipment, you can write off 100% of it. And it's just like any other equipment you purchase. Whether you put it in service for one day or one month or, or the whole year, you can write it all off. You can use bonus depreciation. You could actually use Section 179. The big issue is once you do that, we have to really like that needs to be used exclusively for that business. Correct. It can't come over to you personally and you can't really like just get rid of it. It, it makes, it makes more sense if as real estate professional, if you have an apartment complex and you're buying a maintenance truck or something like that, it makes more sense to put it inside the, the uh, company mm-hmm. inside the business. Uh, if you just have a couple of rental properties that you're tooling you're around, not gonna, you're not going to meet it. You're not going to like exclusivity. So, so Jeff and I get on here all the time 
And we're usually telling people, don't put your car in your business because mm-hmm. you have to use it more than 50% or there's adverse tax consequences. And if your company owns your truck and you start using it personally, it's a taxable event to you. It's the same as it giving you wages. So when I, when I see a fact pattern where it says exclusive, then I'm like, okay, you're going to have commercial insurance on it. Yep. I mean, and it's going to be for the business. It's probably going to stay at the business. And hopefully it is a type of business that is requiring a you know, big truck or something like that. And if that's the case, yeah, you can write it right off. Now, real estate professional status, if you are in a profession, short-term rentals, Airbnb, VRBO, construction, development, uh, real estate agent, if you manage properties, even your properties, and you meet the requirements under 469, it's a section of the code, where you do more than 750 hours in in one of those businesses, one spouse has to qualify. 750 hours and more than 50% of their personal services for the year. So it if you have another job and you do that other job for a thousand hours, you need to do a thousand and one hours in your real estate active businesses. And you have to materially participate on your investment properties. You do those two things, your losses are no longer passive for real estate. They become active ordinary losses. Yep. And if that's the case, you can do a lot of good offsetting your other income. So a W-2 job of a spouse, if you have another W-2 job, if you have another business that's kicking out income, you can offset it. Now that truck, let's say it's a $60,000 truck, something like that, probably not enough, but let's just say 60,000 and it creates a loss of $60,000. If you're a real estate professional, you could take that $60,000 loss and use it to offset your W-2 income or your spouse's W-2 income. Right. That's the benefit of real estate professional status. And you could take your depreciation and create losses. So same scenario as before, we had the person who put the property into service, you're depreciating that. Well, you have a bunch of properties, you can depreciate those and take those against your W-2 income, your spouse's W-2 income, and your other incomes. And I know we have a question coming up on this, but also if you're, if you're a real estate professional, cost segregation becomes a much bigger tool than if you're not. I think we have a question on cost seg, and we'll get into it there. But cost seg is a fancy way of saying, I'm not going to go with the wrong way that they have us do real estate. I'm going to do it the right way. And I'm going to write off all the components of that building that are not long-term mm-hmm. assets, you know, or, you know, that are really equipment, like things like carpeting. That's not part of the structure. Why am I writing that off over 39 years or 27 and a half years? That, that's silly. Carpet doesn't last that long. But if you listen to most accountants, we're all going to, you know, including us, like they're always going to go with the default, which is 27 and a half years. And that's actually the wrong way to do it. They just allow you to do it. The right way is to break all these components down, but it's complicated and you're going to need an engineer to do the study. People don't want to pay that. If you do it, it could be a huge win for you. Huge win. We've had properties that people bought for 1.3 million. I'm thinking of uh, a RV park. Mm-hmm. And we had a million dollar deduction in year one and they financed it. They were in it for maybe a hundred thousand. <laughs> yeah. You can end up with literally getting more taxes back than it costs you to buy the property. If you do the cost sex, right. And if you're a real estate professional, uh, somebody did ask a question going back a couple and it said, Hey, why would it make sense to do from a tax perspective to do 
a small amount of equity and then a loan versus doing it all as equity. From a tax standpoint, it's not a huge difference. In fact, in both cases, you could get the money back. It's just so much easier if you have a loan. Because if you put in equity, then what I'm doing is the company's redeeming my shares. And then it's giving me back the money. And it's the same amount of money that I spent for the shares. So in theory, there's zero tax on it. But what you're really doing is funding the company. You're funding the company. You're, you're not really, when you put the money in, if you need the money back out, you're not really funding them. You're not buying the shares. Like if I bought Microsoft shares, I don't expect Microsoft to give me my money back and then lower my basis, right? But if I loan money to Microsoft, like I buy some shares and I say, hey, regardless of that, I know you need some money and I loan you money, then it, it can pay me back. And it can give me back whatever I loan it, tax-free, and then some interest. And so it's, you know, sounds to me like the reality of the situation was that you wanted the money back. You were just funding it, but you needed that money back. So I would say it's more appropriate to treat that as a loan. Tax standpoint, it doesn't make that big of a difference. All right. When my Wyoming when my Wyoming holding LLC owns another domestic LLC of mine that has active income. So it sounds like the Wyoming is a single member to the individual. Mm-hmm. And the other LLC is owned by the Wyoming LLC. Mm-hmm. So it's a single owner by the Wyoming. And one of these is a licensed insurance agent, which I'm kind of surprised that they would do as a subsidiary or as a single member LLC. But as long as they're happy that it's you, then you're good. Do both LLCs have to file a tax return? Uh, neither LLC has to file a tax return unless you're in certain states. You may have a state filing. That's exactly 100% correct. It's disregarded for tax purposes when it's a single member, so it doesn't file unless your state says single member LLCs have to file for income in our state. Then if so, so it doesn't have to, but will one flow into the holding one and then flow into your personal. That's going to happen regardless, right? Yeah. I mean, look at it this way. I had a, uh, I'm an insurance agent. I was reporting on Schedule C. Somebody, Toby came and says, oh, you need to put this on a holding company. And I do exactly this. I put it in a holding company that's own, or that owns another LLC. My tax reporting hasn't changed at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still reporting it on Schedule C the way I was before I had all these LLCs because IRS doesn't even look consider these LLCs. Yes. Technically, the term is disregarded LLC, and it's disregarded for tax purposes for, to the federal government. So they ignore the holding company, and then you're telling it to ignore the other company. So the IRS says, okay, we're going to ignore them both. Whose return is all this income or loss going to be reported on? And you say, me, mm-hmm. right? It goes from one to the other. Hey, so the second goes to the first, and the first says, I'm going to report everything on your return. Yep. So all the IRS is doing is saying, forget these two, where's you, right? And that's it. It's actually really simple. The bigger question is, why would somebody have a holding entity in Wyoming? It's for asset protection purposes 99.9% of the time, because nobody can take away that Wyoming entity. So if you have value, let's say that you're an insurance agent, you have tails coming into your insurance company, and you don't want anybody to ever take it away, You know whether you get into a car accident, whether you you know, get into a, some sort of uh, legal jeopardy and you, you end up with exposure or, you know, somebody comes after you, your neighbor hates you and sues you. They can't take your LLC away in a state like Wyoming. They, they can't. The best thing they could do is lean it if they're, if they're successful 
in winning their lawsuit against you. So that's why people use Wyoming LLCs. All right, we have a few more and then we will be done. I have heard Tobin talk about, that's me. <laughs> that's actually my middle name, by the way. He actually got it right. I have heard Tobin talk about uh, benefits of cost segregation. I try to read more about it. How do you do a cost segregation analysis? On the IRS website, they talk about construction blueprints, construction engineers, and construction budget. If it is part of the construction project for a new building, how do you get the analysis done if you purchased pre-owned property? Do you hire a firm? So yes, you do need to hire a firm. There's actually two different cost segregations. There's one for residential property, which is fairly straightforward, but you still need to have somebody else do it for you. Mm -hmm. And then there's one for commercial property, which is way more in depth where you start talking about engineering plans and so forth. And the, what does the makeup of it, the commercial It property. sounds like that's what they're doing. And, it, and it's so much easier if you have the plans because you're the cost segregation company. We work with one. We work with Eric Oliver over at Cost Seg Authority. We could share his information with anybody that wants it. But that's all they do. They're, C, they're CPA from that. All they do is cost seg. And they do some energy credits, but they're a very niche mm -hmm. because it's a very niche topic. But because they do them all the time and that's all they do, they're very, very accurate. When they look up a property, they've probably done something in that neighborhood around the country. And they could say with their network of engineers, what do you think? And they know who built it. They know the you know all the contractors on it. They're probably familiar with the property itself. Believe it or not, it's a very small world. And all these builders tend to kind of know each other's stuff. So they'll be like, oh, okay, here. Um, and if you're building it, it just makes it really simple because then they could say, oh, here's all the materials that are tangible personal property yep. that should be treated differently than the structure. And uh, that's how you get all your tax benefit. We, we had one that was, um, and this is why it's so important for commercial property. It was a distribution center warehouse for frozen food products. Mm -hmm. And they ended up writing off somewhere close to 90% of it. Yeah, because, imagine because it's all... Because of the specialty items inside. It wasn't all structural. It's the same thing that happens when you're doing mobile home parks and RVs. A lot of it isn't the structures, because structures really aren't any. It's really the pad. It's all the, it's all the personal property that's going into it. And yeah, you write those things off right away. Patty, to Donna, she's probably looking for Eric Oliver, because I mentioned Eric Oliver over at Cost Seg Authority. So Donna, will make sure we get that to you. Super nice guy, by the way. Yeah. Really great guy. Uh, let's keep going. I operate my business out of my home and want to rent the home to my entity so I can write off the mortgage rental expense as a business expense and, you, and use a primary residential loan to purchase the new home. Can I achieve this by writing a lease to my business? How can I go about this? I wouldn't. Now, is he converting his main home into a business property it becomes investment property i would never rent to your corporation i would never rent your house out mm -hmm. to a business what i would do is have the business reimburse me and allow it to come in and use and, and my and like if if it's me i can have an administrative office in my home and the company can reimburse me 100% of the, the of that value and the way you figure it out is you're going to look at your the net square footage that's usable square footage. I'm going to do it that way. Or I'm going to do the room methodology. But in either case, I'm going to get between 20 and 35% of the house, all the expenses associated with it as a reimbursement. And if I do this correctly, if that business is an S corp, a C corp, an LLC taxes, an S corp or an LLC taxes, a C corp, 
I do not have to pay tax on a nickel of that money. So he does mention purchasing a new home. If that's a case and he's not using old home for any personal use whatsoever. Uh, I know. I think he's, it's, he's talking about his, I operate my business out of my home and want to rent the home to my entity so I can write off the mortgage rental expense. What you're looking at is if you have your house and you're using it for a business, the business can reimburse you mm-hmm. for the use. If it's truly a business. The problem that we see is a lot of people set up as a sole proprietor, in which case you are limited in how much you, even if a bunch of the house is being used, you're limited in how much of that expense you can actually write off. It's like five bucks a square foot per year is the safe harbor. Otherwise you need to show exclusive use of that particular area. And it's based on the gross square footage, not the usable net, the gross square footage of that property. So you end up getting a much smaller amount when you're doing a home office as a sole proprietor, as a partnership. If you're using the home uh, and you're getting reimbursed as an employee of a company and the company is reimbursing you for the use of your home, Mm -hmm. you can actually factor in the depreciation. You could factor in the property taxes. You can factor in even things like utilities and cleaners. You can add it all up. If it's an indirect expense, you can write off a portion of it. If it's a direct expense, like, hey, because I'm in this business, in my home, I have to paint it a certain way and I have to put in shelves and I need equipment and I need a computer and a desk and all that stuff. The company can write up 100% of that and it just reimburses you. So, so let's say we don't go the reimbursement route and I'm charging my corporation rent. If I live in that property for more than 15 days, more than 14 days, mm-hmm my deductions from that property are going to be limited to the income I receive from my corporation. Absolutely. So I'm not going to get any and, benefit from it. The and corp- it's a, it's actually income Yeah. because I'm renting it and it's paying me. I have to pay tax on those dollars that I'm receiving. Correct. I would never do it. I wouldn't either. Yeah. The only time I do it is if I owned a separate property that I was leasing, in which case I'm going to group those two mm-hmm. businesses together and treat them as one anyway. Uh, you could do that with real estate, in case anybody didn't know that. If you self-rent to your active business, uh, probably what what percentage of accountants do you think are unaware that you could group that? Oh, wow. At least half, if not more. Yeah. Uh, the, the vast majority, in my experience, of accountants are unfamiliar with grouping of a piece of investment property with an active business. You can actually do it. Uh, and then you don't have to worry about passive activity loss rules or anything like that. You just get to write it off but it has to be a substantial portion of that building like it's 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 a part of that business all right if you like this type of information we do have upcoming tax and asset protection workshops we have one on july 16th and one on july 30th clint and i tend to do these uh where we are teaching everything from what's an llc corporations land trusts different ways. I go over cost segregation. I go over depreciation. I go over typical business expenses. I go over 280A, which is a way to get more money out of a company uh, by using your your your, your personal uh, home and things like that. There's ways to get money from a company that's tax-free and unreported. That's really great. Uh, you can absolutely join that. It's no cost. It's July 16th or July 30th. Patty will share out the link. The next one coming up is obviously July 16th. And you're going to say, Toby, you guys do workshops all the time. Correct. We are a teaching firm. We teach constantly. 
That's one of the ways we get clients, but it's also the long, the more we teach it, the better we understand it. And so we are constantly going out there and making sure our people are involved. Speaking of our people, I do want to say thank you to the folks that are on answering questions, Jeff, primarily, because he has to sit here and deal with my shenanigans, but Patty, Matthew, Elliot, Dana, Pio, and Ian, and Troy was on. I don't know if I saw Christos. He's usually on too. Let me see. I mean, yeah, there's Christos, all these guys, CPAs, bookkeepers, and uh, accountants. They answer your questions. They don't get paid a nickel for it. They're doing it because it helps you, helps us. A lot of people are on these tax Tuesdays. Aren't they're not part of our firm? We just do it because we think it's important to go out there and share information. And taxes are complicated, and there's a lot of really bunk information out there. So we try to demystify it, make it a little more approachable, so you enjoy it. By the way, if you have questions in between a Tax Tuesday, send it in. Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. We do not charge for this, guys. If it gets too crazy and you're asking a lot of specific things and there's work that has to be done, we'll invite you to become a client. Usually, uh, Platinum will, will, is sufficient and will get you over the threshold. Platinum is only $35 a month. You can ask unlimited tax and asset protection questions. It's going to go through our lawyers. It's going to go to our CPAs. We're going to answer it. Uh, again, we are a teaching firm first and foremost, and that's how we approach it. All of us have been bitten by the high cost of professional services and these retainers that people charge. And we try to make sure that that's not something we're doing to you. We want to make sure that we answer your question. So if you're not even a client, by all means, go to Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors and test us out. See if I'm what I'm saying is accurate. Uh, this is exactly where we pull the questions from that Jeff loves to answer. All right. Yep. And when I'm not around, it's Jeff and Elliot doing a great job. From my understanding is that you guys are kicking it. So a couple of people said, Toby, don't even bother coming back. <laughs> Elliot and Jeff do such a great job. We don't have to listen to your, your, your craziness, right? And we get done by four. It's almost four. So it is four. It's just four 15. All right. So anyway, so I just want to say thank you uh, guys. It's so much fun. Uh, teaching these and it's fun to be back in the saddle and jeff thank you sir thank you glad to have you back all right until the next tax tuesday thank you for listening to today's podcast show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast be sure you subscribe to our podcast and if you are already a subscriber please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode 